Hey, and welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. We are in a series on the book of Revelation where we are seeking what God's word says to us as the church right now. Each week of the series, we will go through large portions of scripture. So if you go to scottshill.org slash revelation, you will be provided a reader's guide to keep you on track with the passages from each week's sermon. We hope this series blesses you as we look forward to the imminent return of Christ. Well, good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. Those of you who are watching us online, thank you for joining us. We'd love for you to send us a message, message letting us know where you're watching us from. We would love to be able to give you a shout out and uh, see what we can do to encourage you further in that. But we're so glad that everybody is here this morning. We live in a world that's filled with sounds, don't we? Every day we wake up, there are sounds to our lives, and we hear these sounds constantly. Now, most of the sounds that you and I hear are sounds that we've grown so accustomed of that we become desensitized to them. It might be the barking of a dog. It might be the traffic on the highway. It might even be an emergency vehicle here or there. So we're all accustomed to a lot of different sounds that really don't bother us. But I did some research this week, and I wanted to see what are the top the top five sounds that we absolutely hate. Top five things that we do not like to hear. So I'm going to give you the top five sounds we hate. I'm going to start with number five. Number five, a dentist drill. <laughs> yeah, now if you're a dentist here, you're saying that sounds like money. So, But for everybody else, nobody likes that. I think I've got a dental appointment this week and I'm going to go under the drill. And so nobody likes that. One of our staff suggested we play it over the speakers and I thought, no, no. Number four, a crying baby. Some of you know that. Um, nobody wants to say they don't like a crying baby's noise, but we do. It can become annoying. How about number three is a female scream. A female scream. Now, I don't know who came up with this, but when you start to think about it, I guess, yeah. Yeah, if I'm in the middle of the woods hunting and it's getting dark and I hear a female scream, that's creepy. Okay, so I'm not going to like that. Number two, nails on a blackboard. We hate the sound of nails on the blackboard. Now, the number one all hated is any song by Miley Cyrus. <laughs> Actually, I made that one up. It was an alarm clock, but that, that that's ranks right up there with me. Any song by Miley Cyrus. Okay, those of you who are Miley Cyrus fans, sorry about that. No, I'm not sorry at all. I'm not. Okay, so now let's look at the five sounds that we love to hear. Starting with number five, water flowing or waves. How many of you sleep with one of those wave machines or something like that? Yeah, we love that. It's soothing. Number four, thunder. Some people love thunder. My dog hates thunder. He's under the bed, but thunder, people like that. Number three, people love a laughing baby. Don't you love the sound of a laughing baby? Makes you smile. Number two, applause. We all love applause. The number one sound that we all love is any song without Miley Cyrus. <laughs> okay, I, that's getting old. <laughs> As we're continuing in our study in the book of Revelation, we come to Revelation chapters 8 and 9. And there we encounter the sounds of trumpets. And those trumpet sounds are not going to be pleasant sounds. They're going to be sounds that will bring a great deal of fear, seriousness, somberness, and destruction. 
And what we're going to look at today is chapters 8 and 9, and we're going to unfold six of the seven trumpet sounds that are going to be blasted. Now, as we're in chapters 8 and 9, if you've read them, and I hope you've been following along with us, these are some very somber things that are going to be happening. They're very serious things that are about to take place. Um, but we need to see them in the scope of all of the judgments in the book of Revelation. Now, last week we were looking at chapter 6 and 7, and we saw where Jesus came to the throne and he takes the scroll from the Father. He's the only one who is worthy, and he begins to un break the seals, the seven seals of that, that scroll. And we wanted to help you to understand how the seals and the trumpets and the bowls all flow together in the book of Revelation. Well, it's more of a telescoping approach. It looks like a telescope. And we said it was like this. The seven seals, which are found in chapter 6 through 8, 1, are the seals that Jesus breaks. But the seventh of the seal leads to the seven trumpets. Today we're going to look at six of those seven trumpets, but the seventh trumpet leads to the seven bowls, and each one becomes more and more intense with the judgments of God. Now, so far what we have seen are the six seals that have been opened. We've seen that the four horsemen have made their way, um, and they brought devastation, and one-fourth of the population has been destroyed. We see that there's been an uptick in persecution of the believers. We see also that there is chaos in nature. And we're well on our way as we're going into the tribulation. But here is something that is really interesting. In the midst of all of these things, God's judgment is always for the purpose of bringing people to repentance. God always brings judgment for his righteousness and justice, but leading people towards repentance. And even in the midst of the four horsemen and the persecution and all of the chaos, people are not repenting. In fact, the people are said in this chapter, chapter 8 and 9, that these are the people who dwell on the earth. Really interesting phrase. People who dwell on the earth are not talking about the inhabitants. It's talking about those people who dwell for the earth. These are the people who live for worldly pleasures. They live for worldly possessions. They live for worldly power. They live for worldly prestige. And God is about to bring these judgments on the people who refuse to repent and to turn to him. When we look at chapters 8 and 9, we're going to break those down into four different sections. And these four sections are very significant. Because as we look at these, one leads to the next. So take out your Bibles, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Challenge us today. Speak to our hearts today that we might know what your intention is for our lives and for your people. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There are four things, four ways we're going to break this down. As we begin to break it down, here's the first thing that we see. We see that there's a preparation before judgment. 
In chapter 8, we see that there's a preparation before the judgment. And let me say this. God always does this. God always brings warnings before he brings the judgment. And so there's this preparation phrase that's going to take place in verses um, 1 through 5. And here's the first thing we see that is broken down in three areas. First, there's silence. There's silence in heaven, which is something really unusual. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And scholars ask, why was there silence in heaven? Was it because there's something that is going to be so horrible that everybody's standing in astonishment? Or is it something that's so glorious that they're standing just unbelievable in awe? Now, there are two kinds of silence. There's always the silence of refreshment and, uh, and rest. But there's also a silence of astonishment. And most people believe that this is going to be the kind of silence of astonishment when that seal is opened and that seventh seal comes and the trumpets are about to blow. All of heaven is standing silent because God is about to do something that no one has ever seen before. And we see through the pages of Scripture, anytime God is about to do something great, the response is silence. We see it in Zephaniah. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Zechariah, be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Have you ever been in a situation where God's done something in your life and you stood speechless? You've just not been able to say anything? You know, most of the time we're people of words, and a lot of times when we talk, we talk because we're nervous and we don't know what to say. But there are times when we can just stand in silence and like, wow. I remember many years ago, our whole pastoral team went to see the Passion of the Christ. It was one of those matinee movies. We went, I think, about noon. We all went in. Nobody bought popcorn. We watched that movie. And if you remember that movie, just the serious and the heaviness of it, when we left there, we got in the car and nobody said a word. We drove all the way back to the office without even talking because we were trying to process, wow, the depths that God went through for our salvation. And we need to be very careful when God's about to do something and some things, rather than running our mouth all the time, it'd be really good just to sit back and be astonished at what he is about to do. So there's silence. But secondly, there's supplication. Right before the judgment comes, we see God answering prayer. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. And seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints and the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. In the Old Testament, incense was always a sign of prayer going up before God. And prayer before God is always a sweet aroma when it's prayed and when prayers are offered in a biblical way. And so what we see is that the prayers of the saints have made their way to God. You remember in chapter 6, the saints that were put under the altar were praying and asking God to come and demonstrate his righteousness and his justice to mankind? They were not praying for revenge. They were not vengeful saints. They were praying that God's righteousness and justice would dis be displayed on earth, that all humanity would see his glory. In other words, they were praying what saints do all the time, on earth as it is in heaven. How many of you have ever prayed that? 
On earth as it is in heaven. But let me tell you this. On earth as it is in heaven doesn't just mean the really good, sweet things on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes it means the judgment of God coming and fulfilling his righteousness and his justice. Have you ever prayed in a situation that God's justice would be revealed? Have you ever prayed that God's righteousness would be demonstrated? That's the same thing. And many times when we pray, like it or not, sometimes our prayers can bring about the judgment and the righteousness of God. So here's this preparation. There's silence, there's supplication. But the third thing is there's a storm brewing. Then the angel took the censer and he filled it with fire from the altar and he threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashing of light, and an earthquake. It shocked John. He sees all of this stuff, and this angel takes it, and he throws it to the earth. Here is a, a calm before the storm. This judgment is about to hit humanity. And yet, even in the midst of this, listen to me carefully, there are many times that God brings a calm before a storm in our own lives. And when he does that, the Spirit of God typically is working within us, convicting us, calling us to a place of repentance, giving us an opportunity to experience the grace and the goodness of God. And when there's a calm, we need to pay attention and say, Lord, what are you doing? What is it about me? What's getting ready to come? What do I need to be prepared for? Some of you this morning, there's a calm in your life right now, and God's been speaking to your heart about being prepared for what he is going to do. Do not ignore that because God is preparing your heart. You see, what we see is God's goodness in the preparation before the judgment comes. He always demonstrates that. But here's the second part. Not only is there the preparation before, there is a desolation because of judgment. Now we're going to see the seven trumpets blow. And God's already given a warning. It's been quiet. And now they're about to be a, the, the desolation because of the judgments of God. He says, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Trumpets were very significant in the nation of Israel. They meant a number of things. A lot of times they herald a king that was coming, or sometimes they would blow before there would be uh, an announcement that would be made, or the trumpets would go to gather all the people into an assembly to worship. But when trumpets blew, most of the time, it was a warning of danger approaching. So each of the seven trumpeteers blow a warning before something happens. And when we look at this desolation that is going to come because of judgment, it is broken down into two specific ways. Here's the first way. There's divine disruption on earth's ecology. The first four trumpets are about the divine disruption on our ecology, in our world. Here's how it goes. First trumpet, it destroys all vegetation. The first angel blew his trumpet. And there followed hail and fire. Sounds like some of the plagues of Egypt. Mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. Now let me show you a couple of things. First of all, there's something that brings about this destruction to um, our vegetation. 
Some say that it's going to be earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. All those things are going to change the course of our weather. And as a result, there'll be heat, there'll be fire. We see that a lot of it is burned up. And when it talks about the, the, the ground being burned up, that's talking about the vegetation, all the, the vegetables that we eat. Now, for some of us, we don't care if Brussels sprouts are burned up or whatever, you know. I'm fine with that. But most of that is going to be burned up. The trees represent the fruit. Fruit will be burned up, a third of it. Then it talks about the grass burned up. Here's God's grace even in the midst of this. It's only partial judgment because it's one-third. Something's going to happen to destroy the vegetation around the world in certain areas, but it'll only be a third. But here's the second thing. The second trumpet attacks the seas. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. This picture is of an asteroid or maybe a huge meteorite that lands into one of the seas. I did some research this week. Do you know that there are 27,024 near-Earth objects in space every year? 27,000. And they look at all of these asteroids and these things that are passing near us. And scientists at NASA are constantly watching and monitoring these things. And some of them don't come very close at all. But you may have read this past week of a lady who woke up. And she heard a loud sound, and when she woke up, on the pillow next to her was a huge rock that was smoking. She called the police. They came over and discovered that it was a meteorite that fell through her ceiling and landed in her bed next to her. She thought it was just her hard-headed husband at first. But, uh, but those things happen. And what we see here is a picture of an asteroid that comes and lands in the ocean in such a way that it destroys a third of the sea. It turns to blood a third of the living creatures and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, I hope that doesn't happen soon because all those cargo ships in California are gone. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about. But can you imagine what would happen if this occurred and half of the, a third of the sea creatures that we depend on for food and sustenance and the ships destroyed in one blast? That's the second trumpet. The third trumpet, fresh water. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. This is just talking about maybe a meteor that breaks up in, in ways that it goes and hits all the fresh water areas, a third of the freshwater areas around the world. Wormwood is a shrub which has a very bitter, poisonous taste to it. And that's the picture here. It becomes undrinkable. And as a result, many people are going to die. So you've got vegetation burned up. You've got a third of the seas destroyed. Now you've got a third of the fresh water around the world contaminated that people can't drink. And then here's the last one. The fourth trumpet is the atmosphere. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of the light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise, a third of the night. While the other ones happened on certain areas around the world and just a third was impacted, this becomes global because everybody's impacted by the sun. 
And because of the burning, because of the smoke, because of the destruction of what's taken place, the atmosphere is filled with smoke. The sun is dulled. The moon is dulled. The stars are dulled. And you know what happens when you don't feel the full heat of the sun? Temperatures begin to plummet. People begin to freeze to death all around the world. More vegetation dies. And what we see is a divine disruption of our ecology. Now listen carefully. What God does with this is remove all the things that people think give them the sustenance of life. All the things that are important to them all the things of leisure, all the things that they lean on, all the things that they think, we need this. Let's worship the earth. Let's protect the atmosphere. Let's stop global warming. Let's do all of these things. And yet none of this is done by man, but it's by God's judgment. And what I think a lot of times is we can fall into that same trap, can't we? We can get so settled into our lives that we think, you know what? Our bank accounts will always be the answer. Our houses will always be the answer. Our food supply will always be the answer. Our shipping supply will always be the answer. We're already seeing disruptions in a minor way of that. And what God does is he removes all of these things. Why? To point people back to their greatest need. And yet, they refused to repent. So not only does God remove this, bring this divine disruption on earth's ecology, it gets worse. There's demonic oppression on unsaved humanity. Now, when we get into chapter 9, it is the most over-evaluated chapter probably in all of Revelation. And the reason it's over-evaluated is because John is seeing some scary stuff here. And what we want to do is we want to read our technology into this passage. Now remember this, the book of Revelation cannot mean to us what it did not mean to the people who heard it. And so a lot of people will get into chapter 9 and they'll say, oh, the locusts, those are Apache helicopters. That, that, that's um, um, military equipment. That's all kind of technology that's going to come. John couldn't see that. He didn't understand it. So these are the things that it probably is. And we start looking at these things and want to interpret it along those ways, but it's not. What we're beginning to see is God unleashing the very demonic forces of the spiritual world on humanity. The fifth trumpet tells us about that. It is a release of demonic beings into our world. Now we all hear and know of demonic instances in our world. There are horror movies that people love to go and watch these things because they love to get scared. None of these things that you've ever seen come close to what God is going to release. And when he releases these demonic beings, it's un nothing like we can ever imagine. Here's what it says in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. That star, many scholars believe, is Satan himself. Jesus says in Luke 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Isaiah chapter 14, it speaks of the fall of Satan because of his pride from heaven. This is an image of Satan himself. And here's what has happened. God gave to him the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. 
This was a place for the most vile, the most despicable, the most heinous of all demonic beings. And Satan releases them into our culture. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft. We go on. And from there the smoke came locusts on earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were like locusts. They were not locusts. They were demonic beings who had a heinous um, appearance, but they had the ability to sting like locusts. Now, they were given instructions by God what they could do and what they could not do. And they were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, those believers living in the tribulation during that time will not be harmed by these demonic, oppressive beings. Only those who are unrepentant. And they have a limit on that. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment were like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. We don't know what they are. He gives a description in there. But we know this, that the people who have always run from death in these days will run to death, but can't find it. And it will be a torturous thing that these demonic beings are going to bring. Who's the head of them? He tells us in verse 11, they have his king over them, an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's Apollyon, which is Satan himself. So what's going to happen? There will be a releasing of demonic forces that will come into the world that will bring great oppression that we have never seen. Fifth trumpet. Now we get to the sixth trumpet. It's a release of a demonic army. This is getting worse. Where those first demonic beings were not allowed to kill anyone but only torture them, these demonic beings are going to be allowed to take one-third of humanity. And here's how John says what he saw. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. The four angels are probably four very strong, demonic, fallen angels, because angels in Scripture are never bound, but these are. And it says, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. So they were going to go and bring destruction to a third of humanity. Now, already one quarter of humanity has been destroyed by the four horsemen. Now you got more than a half of all the people living will die. Of the seven billion people there'll be less than 3.5 billion people alive after they have their way. He paints a heinous picture of what they look like. And how many were there? We know, he tells us, the number of the mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, 200 million. Now, many people will say, oh, that sounds like China, because today China boasts of 200 million troops. No, that's not China because that comes later when we talk about the king of the east. 200 million demonic forces going out to destroy those who are unrepentant and who have rejected the message of the gospel. Wow. 
And even in all this, God leaves three and a half billion people to repent. What do they do? Here's the third point. The renunciation of God in spite of judgment. The people still refuse to repent. Look at verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind, three and a half billion left, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or, or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. They refused to repent. They refused to reject the gods of their world. And all idols are nothing more than some demonic being that's attached to them. And so they refuse to reject the things that they worship over God. Not only that, he says they refused to reject their murders, their violence. The word sorcery is an interesting word. The word in the Greek is pharmacia. And we know that's um, use of medication. And when people abuse drugs, there's always demonic strongholds that are connected to that. And then they refuse sexual immorality to give that up or the corruption of their lives. And these people stand in the face of some of the greatest atrocities that they've ever seen, and yet they refuse to submit to God. Now, I know that you and I think, how could anybody ever do that? People do it every day, every single day. God presses upon people's hearts to submit to him, and they refuse to do that, and they would rather follow their own gods of this world than God. People hear about repenting of sexual immoralities, and they reject the scripture and the gospel, and they say, wait a minute, I'm living my truth. This is my truth, and they walk away from that. People in the church are called by God to repent of certain sins where they cannot be distinguished between the world and the church. And they continue to walk in those sins. And every single day, God is giving us the opportunity to hear his heart and to turn to him. In my years of ministry, I have encountered at least three people on their deathbeds who all knew they were lost and yet refused to surrender to God. In fact, if there was a prayer on their lips, it would be the poem Indictus. I am the captain of my own soul. And while we look at these people in the days ahead of what they're still going to not repent of, we don't have to look far around us today, do we? to hear the judgment of God, and yet we still don't repent. This chapter ends so gloomy. You're like, wow, Phil, thank you for sharing chapters 8 and 9 with us today. Wow, we understand that. Yeah, what do we do with this? There's one other point I want to get to you today, and it's what I call the consolation. The consolation from these trumpets, and this is good. 
out of all of this judgment, out of all this darkness, out of all of these things that are going to be happening, you let me tell you what's happening right now. Some people are thinking, oh, this is so far-fetched. We can't believe this. I'm going to go ahead and live my life. And God's saying, no, 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 no. Listen, listen, listen. And we refuse to listen. But here's a consolation. I want to give you four things in the consolation. Number one, God is still in control of all things. He's still in control of all things. Even in the midst of all these judgments, God hasn't lost his sovereignty. In fact, it was God who handed the scroll to his son. It was God who called the seven trumpeteers forward. It was God who gave to Satan the keys of the pit. He did not have them apart from God. It was God who told the demonic beings how far they could go and what they couldn't do. And it is God who is in absolute control of every single minute, second, and molecule that happens all across the universe at any given time. And so we as believers can recognize this. Here's our confidence. God is still on his throne. I love what Martin Luther said about this one time. He says, the devil is still God's devil. That means this. The devil still is submissive to God. He still has no authority that God does not grant. He still cannot do a single thing that God does not allow. He is still in control. And so you know what that means for us, church? That means this. We can go on and be faithful and live a courageous Christian life Because our God is still in charge of the brokenness and the mess that this world has found itself in. Aren't you glad of that? But here's the second thing. God still hears the prayers of his people. He still hears the prayers of his people. Let me say this. God's delays are never God's denials. God may delay answered prayer, but that doesn't mean he's denied it. He's working out his plan. And we as his people can come to him and pray, and we can know this, that he hears our prayers, that he delights in our prayers, that it is a sweet aroma before the throne of God as we come and we cry out on behalf of our neighbors. We cry out on behalf of this world. We cry out for righteousness and justice to be displayed into our culture. And sometimes it seems like he's not hearing us. But just because they're delayed does not mean they're denied. He is working those out, and we still pray every day. Here's the third thing. God still protects his own. He still protects his own. God has his protection around those who belong to him. And I love the statement I heard many years ago. It was like this. Every Christian is completely invincible until the day that God calls him or her home. We're invincible. Like I said last week, so what if the world wants to come at us? I said, get the t-shirt, come at me, bro. We're invincible. Because we can continue to walk faithfully before the Lord and trust not only is he hearing us, but he is watching out over us. He is taking care of those who are his own. And he's going to use us to complete what he has begun until the day of Christ Jesus. Here's the last one. God's judgment is certain. We live in a world that hates the word judgment. 
Well, don't judge me. No, you can't be judgmental. God has every right to judge because he is the judge. And his judgments are always righteous. His judgments are always just. His judgments always bring out two things, warnings and grace and grace. We don't like the thought of being accountable for our lives, but there's going to come a day where every single one of us will stand either before Christ as believers or before Almighty God as unbelievers. And there will be an account. There will be a day of reckoning and his judgments are right. Believers, listen to me. If God is pressing on your heart these days, some deficiency in your life, that is his grace. That's his grace. He loves you so much that he wants to you put you into the place where you're built and shaped into the image of his son more and more. And he brings these convictions to your heart so that you would be drawn closer to him. It is his grace in your life. And the scripture says that his mercies are new every morning. They're fresh. They're not stale. And every day, believers, we walk in the grace of God. We walk in the kindness of God. And when he calls us to repent, we repent because we want to be like Jesus. So we die to the things of the world so that we can live for the things in Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're listening to all this and you're saying, wow, man, that is wild stuff. Let me ask you a question. How quickly have you seen our country change in just this nine months? When you think about all the things that are happening around us, you probably already thought this would never happen in your lifetime. Now we're seeing supply lines being taken down. Now we're seeing all these different things happening all around us, and you realize it can happen very quickly. And all of this is in God's hands. And your being here today, listen, is a testimony of grace. God is saying to you, I want you to hear because my judgment is sure, but my grace is real. Would you surrender to me today? Get off your own little throne and let me be the one overseeing your life. Would you surrender to me today to admit your sin and surrender your life to my son, Jesus Christ, so every sin can be forgiven, so that you would be filled with the Spirit of God, and you will be eternally secure. Will you repent? That's grace. But listen to me. There comes a day where grace runs out. There comes a day where you're going to stand before him and give an account. And nothing, nothing will change that. Today is the day of salvation, right now. And the consolation of this horrible passage 
and said, you have an opportunity to surrender. So believers, what do we do? We pray. We pray that God's righteousness and justice would be revealed. But we speak. We speak the message of the gospel to everyone. In every way. At every time. So that we... Somebody told me this. When we looked at the throne room a couple of weeks ago, he said, oh, the throne room is going to be very glorious. I can't wait to be there. But I've been convicted that God's told me to bring as many people as I can to the party. I thought, wow, that's good. And let's pray for the loss. Share with them so that they could come and be the found in Christ. So if you're here this morning as a believer, what are you leaning into that's not your security? What are you consumed by in this world other than Jesus? Give that to Him and lean fully into Him today and let Him be the source of your everything. Unbelievers, consider Jesus. Here's your grace. Here's His goodness. He's waiting for you to respond. Would you do so? I'm going to pray. By the way, we don't have a song closing today. Father, thank you for the seriousness of your word. And Father, we see the reality of what sin does and what sin brings. And Father, we see that your judgment is righteous and just. And who are we to stand before you and tell you what is right and what is not? But Father, we see your grace in all of this. Father, as believers, would we be serious about our own lives of holiness to you and our own lives of effectiveness with the gospel to others? Father, for those who are without Christ this morning, I pray that you would so challenge their hearts to surrender to you. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, you've never surrendered your life to Christ, but you're willing to do so this morning, I want you to pray this prayer to yourself, not out loud, pray it to yourself. Say, dear God, I know you're God. And I know that Jesus is your son. And I believe that he died on a cross for my sins, that he rose on the third day and he is alive today, and I believe he is here right now calling me to himself. And right now, I surrender my life to you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to come live inside of me and be my Lord and my Savior. And I commit to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer and for forgiving me of my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by this message and you now have a desire to follow Christ or you just want to learn more about our church, I encourage you to go to scottshill.org slash next steps so that we can follow up with you. Also, if you were blessed by this message, I encourage you to share it with your friends and family on social media. God bless.